Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice, calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Waking with Depression. This talk was recorded in 2017. Sometimes we get depressed, heartbroken, How can meditation help us when we're down? Is waking with depression possible? Today we are joined by Joseph Mauricio. Joe is a longtime student of Shambhala Buddhism, as well as an author, speaker, coach, teacher, and chaplain. As the founder of LifeWork Mindfulness-Based Coaching Services, Joe offers Buddhist and Shambhala training principles to help private and corporate clients manifest lives of dignity, sanity, and strength. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Here's Joe to take away the discussion. A lot of people suffer from depression or anger, heartbreak, difficulty. Some people deal with substance abuse. And at the root, a lot of this is really trying to medicate things that actually humans were maybe meant to feel. At the very root, I think depression is a completely reasonable response to the world, you know? And I think the problem isn't the thing itself, but more the way we relate to it. That if we're sitting there a little bit depressed, a little bit sad, or maybe even a lot sad, a lot depressed, we have this thought in our head that other people are all enjoying themselves. There, there are people out there living a Pepsi commercial, and, and you're sitting here ruining your life because you can't get out of bed. On some level, I'd rather be in bed than in a Pepsi commercial. <laughs> you know? And I'm not saying that we should chuck it in and give up and let go, but I think that whole stiff upper lip business, that whole idea that we could just soldier through the ill feelings and the sadness, is really debilitating. It's really causing a lot of pain in the world. And I think that the people that can't rise up to that and cave in under the pressure of that think that they're the only ones. That's the sad part. I think everybody else is out there, like, <laughs> killing it, so to speak. Did you see that Minds? Have you seen that Mindspace app ad? I killed my meditation. I, I meditate so I could kill it. That's awesome. I'm not sure that's the point. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that these apps are there and that these studios are, which I'm involved in a, a number of them, Mindful Here, Recharge in D.C., a new place called Just Meditate in Bethesda. It's wonderful that people could like walk in the door and meditate or pick up their phone and have an app. And, and those things are great. And they kind of give us access to 
this wonderful tool, which is meditation. But I think that really what we have to do is get it off the app and off the subway in a way. That those things are wonderful. You know, I, many of you know that I, I host Sits in Times Square. I'll be doing another one in a couple of weeks to let you know about. But really, when it comes down to it, getting past all of these gateways, and that's what they are, gateways, and beginning to make a real personal relationship with meditation. Something that actually allows you to be able to open your heart to you, you know? Not just something that gets you fitter and tighter and smarter and more focused, but maybe something that goes a little bit beyond that and starts to develop what is sometimes called radical acceptance. And you probably heard that. And uh, Tara Brock and Tony Packer talk about that a lot. And it's, it's, it's a great term because the idea is the acceptance here is not radical because acceptance is radical. Acceptance is very ordinary, but radical in the sense of accepting everything about ourselves. Like taking the things that we're embarrassed about and being willing to be with that and see that and uncover that. Not in a way that's self-flagellating or in a way that's self-abusive or even therapeutic and endlessly storytelling to ourselves, but more in a sense of being able to wake up and honor who we are and how we feel, regardless of how that is. If you're feeling badly, I would say pay attention to that. There may be some information there. If you're feeling badly and you can't pay attention to it and you decide to ignore it by drinking through it, well, okay. I don't do that anymore, but I, I, I do get lost in TV. And, uh, you know, I could, I could burn through a whole season of a show when I really don't want to face the world. You know, I feel like I'm doing something brilliant. You know, and uh, five o'clock in the morning, I'm like, ah, oh, this is one more episode. I can't go to bed. <laughs> I'm on the verge of something here. <laughs> I'm going to figure out what OA is actually about. <laughs> and I didn't, it didn't work. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, on one level, that's, that's, that's an indulgence. And it's not something I'm proud of, even though I'm talking about it here where I'm just trying to bond with it. It's not something I promote. By the same token, if I actually feel terrible about it and feel like I'm wasting my life because of it and feel like there's something bad, then it's doubly problematic. Does that make sense? Like if there's times when we just need to check out, I say check out and check back in as soon as you can. And the beautiful thing about meditation, if I could just do an infomercial for it, is that if we start to let go of, oh, it's supposed to make me feel better, and really go to the next level, and that's what I encourage all of you to do, is go to the next level, which is, oh, let's put feeling better aside here, and let me begin to learn to feel how I actually feel. That the next level of getting off our own back and beginning to open up and actually feel what's going on. That's a little scary. Because I think some of us feel like there's a giant 
box, a Pandora's box, or, you know, a fun house, or something hiding in the back that if we open, it's going to be problematic or overwhelming. My guess is then maybe we should open slowly, gently, be kind to ourselves. Anyway, there's a recommendation I have for you for your meditation practice, but also for working with difficult emotions such as depression, which is that seeing is better than healing or fixing or changing. It's a more powerful approach to just accept. Does that make sense? Because if you go in and go, okay, I'm going to pay attention to my depression, so I get through it. That doesn't really count. Does that make sense? It's like being with a friend who's having a hard time just so that they'll shut up and you guys could go out. You know, the people feel that. They look through that, you know. Or trying to fix your partner, you know. My partner's really good at going, just leave me. <laughs> Don't fix me. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I want you just... I don't know, right? Because we get like that. We don't know. But what we don't want is somebody getting in there and being another voice telling us we're supposed to be somebody different. Does, does that make sense? So I, I have a big swings. I'm Italian-American. I don't know what that has anything to do with it, but my whole family, that side of the family, half Italian, we all suffer from, you know, kind of a morose thing. And it's really funny because we're all people that everybody thinks are cheerful and jolly. Right? And everybody's like, you guys are so much fun. <laughs> yeah, just don't come home with us. You know? <laughs> there is a darkness underneath. <laughs> but that darkness is, is what gives a certain soul, right, to things and a certain truth, I think, to them. And... Uh, so there's, there's a sense, like in, in our family, we used to have this saying, whoever's in the worst mood wins, right? It's like whoever is the deepest, crankiest, most depressive gets their way because nobody wants to mess with it, you know, and that kind of thing. And in a way, we kind of supported it a little more than we needed to. But at least there was this cradle of love and kindness around it, this sense that people who feel deeply about the world are going to feel heartbroken about the world. And if we don't deal with that heartbreak in the right way, it could turn to anger or it could turn to self-abuse. And I think one of the ways that it really becomes problematic in a city like New York is that it really looks frequently like everyone else is having this great time and just moving so much more quickly up the ladder. Have you ever had that feeling? Where does that ladder go? That's another thing. Okay, so if we're all like running away from hell, I guess, right? So we all have this idea of hell, but no two people have the same idea of what that is. We just believe it somehow, right? Then we all feel like we should be going up a ladder, but no two people have the same idea of where that ladder goes, right? It's like on some level, at what point do we just start looking at what's here, and beginning to come into our personal, immediate truth and just really accept what we are and who we are. And it's been my experience that if you could learn to keep love in your heart for you without anybody even having to know, 
just there for you. If you could start to develop that and begin to develop that, you develop a strength that no one can take from you because it's not dependent upon anyone else. It's not a strength that's dependent upon who you know or what velvet ropes you get past, right? It's not dependent upon whether you're published or not published or tenured or not tenured or where you live in the world or how your life is, right? It's dependent upon the fact that you have fused or forged a relationship with the only person that can help you, which is you. <laughs> the only one who was there at the beginning, really. The only one who will be there at the end. The one who will always be there and has always been there. And to some extent, how much do we honor that or respect that? How much do we actually look at ourselves and go, Wait, you're not really a problem. I think you're, I act like you're a problem. <laughs> but you've actually been here the whole time, you know? And maybe every time we try to fix depression or try to fix ourselves from some problem we have or try to get better, we're subtly telling ourselves we're not good enough. We want to change ourselves because we think we should look a different way or act a different way. If we're depressed and we're angry about that, is our thinking we're angry about that because we love ourselves? No. We're mad at ourselves. We're pissed off at ourselves. And we somehow think that that's going to help, right? Like, you're depressed, so you get angry and add more pressure to the situation. No wonder you don't want to get out of bed. And I think that for some people, the wounds they carry with them, this is a cliche, cliche warning coming, but I think sometimes cliches have a modicum of truth to them. And I think that a lot of the wounds that we carry come from early childhood, come from early times in our life. They're not as developed. The voices of our pain aren't as developed as our mind Right? So our brain is going, well, all of that is meaningless. I'm a Buddhist practitioner. It's all empty. <laughs> you know, and our heart is going, no, somebody's going to leave me again. You know, and I'm just going to wait till somebody leaves me again. And I'm going to panic until somebody leaves me again. And our brain is going, well, it doesn't matter. It's all empty. And I'm going to let go and live in love. <laughs> and our heart's like, come on, give me pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Give me pizza. <laughs> if you think about it, your depression, your anger, your sadness, your hurt frequently could be looked at like a small child. It's, it's not a voice you could speak logically with, right? Now, let me ask you this. If there was a child in your life or in your house or you came across that was depressed or frightened, which is, I think, what it all comes down to, right? How would you treat that child? Would you treat it the way you treat you when you're frightened? I hope not, you know? Would you yell at the child? Would you be disappointed in it? Would you tell it to get its shit together? Would you give it alcohol so it could just get <laughs> drunk? <laughs> right? No. 
probably, chances are, you'd hold it. And what we're going to talk about now, and what I want to do with a little practice with you, is the idea of holding it. We have a phrase. I, I, I say this in a lot of talks, but it's really a powerful phrase, a very basic Shambhala phrase, uh, putting the mind of fearfulness in the cradle of loving kindness. The idea is it can be transferred to a very practical, physical system or situation. That what you're doing is the cradle of loving kindness, for one thing, isn't, isn't freaking out. <laughs> it's, it's a cradle. It's just there, right? But it's also not squeezing the child, you know? You're not saying, I'm, you know, wrap yourself in chains of loving kindness. You're holding, which is creating a certain sense of safety and protection, but not squeezing, as if to say there's something wrong and I need to panic. So this is actually translatable and transferable to your body. Because you hear a lot in Buddhist circles and meditation circles about clinging and attachment, grasping, fixation, these words. But they're actually very practical. You could feel it in your body. If you really want something, your body starts to respond to that. And if you really don't want to lose it, your body will start to squeeze. If you're really upset at yourself and you're embarrassed about yourself, your body will squeeze so that part of you is really kind of like ostracized. Does that make sense? So I have a story that I've told before. I apologize if you've heard it before, the story of me on the bus. But I had uh, just left someone and that I loved and in a way that was not easy. Um, and I was on this bus, and I had to come to New York to give probably one of these Tuesday night talks. I live primarily in Baltimore. And I'm, I'm on the bus on the way up, and I, I can't handle it. I, do you have, you've had this experience? It's like, I don't even know what I thought might happen, but I just didn't think I could be there in front of people. But it was too late, because we were on the turnpike, you know? And literally going through my head, well, should I just tell them to stop, or what could I do, you know? And uh, wishing I still drank. <laughs> There's something easy to get out of this. It's just this vice in my head. Of course, amplified and exaggerated by the fact that I didn't feel I had the permission to be that way, right? Because I was in front of people on a bus, and I'm a Buddhist teacher, and I'm headed toward, I don't know, New York. And there's all this more and more pressure just creating anything but a cradle of loving kindness. It's creating a, a prison, you know? And just, it, just like with the way gauges work with pressure, the tighter the gauge, the, the higher the pressure. Like the tighter you hold something, the more pressure there is. It's the basic theory of creating bombs. Um, so the more you relax and open, the less pressure. And the more you could actually feel what's there. Are you a bomb in, a, in a way, <laughs> emotionally. And in a, in a way that you could feel it, right? In a way that's, that becomes clear to you and becomes workable. When it's, when it's highly pressurized, it's not workable for anybody. You can't do it, you know? Somebody once asked Sakyam Mipam, when I'm freaking out, you know, at my boy boyfriend, <laughs> when I'm freaking out at my boyfriend and screaming at him, what should I do? And he goes, well, the horse is already out of the barn at that point. <laughs> he says, go for a walk. 
That's what you should do. Because at some point, when we're freaked out and freaked out, then it's game over, and it's harm reduction. It's about calming down and relaxing and just soothing ourselves and making sure things don't get worse. But when we get to the point where we could relax again, we could really begin to open up and feel what's there. Well, this pressure being on, it was a packed bus, and there's people everywhere, and, and I'm literally losing it. So I called my friend, who is a psychotherapist, and also a, a teacher. We were actually teaching together meditation and psychology classes. And I called him up, and I t explained the whole thing to him. And he said, I think this is very early stuff for you, don't you think? And I was like, it feels like it. It's got to be more than just this one thing. I, I love this woman, but it, it, what I'm going through is just not commensurate to what we just went through. And uh, it's, it's a really deep sense of abandonment and rejection and just like this feeling that I'm horrible because I'm having these feelings, right? And he said, go into your body and just relax. Relax your body. But he said, I want you to think of it like this. I want you to imagine that you have a child that's been hurt. And as you squeeze your body, you're pushing that child away. And then he says, I think, knowing you, you kept that child at a distance for many years. You're embarrassed about it. You don't love it. You think it's a burden to you and you don't accept it. And he said, I want you to do that right now. Close your eyes, open your heart, and accept that wound just as it is, and open up and let the child in. Well, I, I did, and I just started crying. It was beyond any capability of me stopping. I just lost it and just started crying, waves and waves. And had my eyes closed, because I, and I didn't know what I was going to do when I opened my eyes, how I was going to face anybody. And finally, I had to, of course, and he had to get off the phone, and I was there alone again. And I opened my eyes, and the guy next to me is holding out a handkerchief. <laughs> and he goes, we all been there. <laughs> and literally, everybody I could see was just looking at me beaming, you know, and just looking and nodding, right? if that makes any sense. It was the complete opposite of what I thought would happen, which, like, they'd kick me off the bus or something, you know? <laughs> it was really amazing. It was like this ability to just touch the heart and open it up and be honest and real instead of defensive and making all this stuff up, you know? And just opening up and letting that integration in. So how does this work with meditation? The idea is, our first stage of meditation is trying to feel better, you know, trying to be part of a community of people that are waking up, you know, and that's good. But the next level is maybe I can get under the skin here and really start to feel what's in there and really learn to open up the body, learn to not cling and grasp, but learn to open up to what I need and how I need it and when I need it. Does that make sense? and develop the stability of mind to actually stay with that. We all have our ideas of what we think strength is. From a meditation point of view, strength is being able to sit in the storm of your emotions, the waves of your heart, and just be present with it, and not fix it. You know? And that's between acting out and repressing. 
So not repressing, but by opening up, but not acting out and causing harm and problems and a whole dramatic thing that affects other people. Does that make sense? But actually just being there and not fixing anything, but just feeling, bringing awareness to it. And if you think about it, that's what a child wants when it's frightened. It doesn't want to be talked out of the fact that there are no monsters. They know there are no monsters. They want attention, and they want a feeling of someone there with strength. Does that make sense? And I wonder if we can be that for ourselves. And I think that is something that begins to happen with meditation. We learn to be strong for us and to be able to hold that panic and that pain in loving kindness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, well, those are the two extremes. So by extension, and I mentioned a little bit about hell, right? So the other extreme is what? Heaven, right? So those are two extremes in, in what we call theistic really things, that, that, that there's a good that we have to go to, and we have to push the bad away. And more Asian ways of thinking generally, even in, in, in healing, and in medicine is rather than killing the sickness is to begin to accept it and understand it and learn how to bring it into the system into balance. Does that make sense? Like how to bring these things together. That's the middle way. So eternalism is the belief that, you know, these things out there are real and they're going to save us or condemn us. And nihilism is nothing's real, so I shouldn't do anything. So. The middle way between that is understanding that the world is really important, but it's not that important, you know? Not so much that we have to lose our sense of humor. And in some regards, that's the best antidote, I think, for depression and sadness is sense of humor. And I was a comic, some of you know, and uh, I can tell you right now, if you think comedians are happy people, you're absolutely wrong. There is nothing as dreadful as a room full of comics, like going to a party. No, none of them want to be there. They all don't like each other. They don't like anybody. Bill Hicks, my favorite comedian, used to say, uh, I'm, I'm starting a people hate people group, but I can't get anybody to come, <laughs> which suits me fine. <laughs> Was there a question? Yes. Um, it just sort of goes on and on and on and on, and you never kind of reach a catharsis like you did. I mean, well, that was one. It, it didn't cure everything. Yeah. You know, it was it was a big moment, and it showed me the way to keep having it go on and on and on in a spiral. Right? Does that make sense? Instead of just staying in the same plane. Like, I think we have to accept that we're going to have good days and bad days. I feel like I cut you off. No, no, I'm just, it's just, yeah. seems like lately all I have is bad days. I see. And so, I, you know, and, and I know this, you know, find the fear, cradle mm -hmm. the fear, um, feel the fear, and stay with your feelings. But it's almost like I'm numb, I'm just numb. Yeah. And so, 
you know, I don't know. Like, it's more like a I can't get out of bed situation. Yeah. Although I can, but and I get out of bed and feel terrible. Well, one thing that I, I may give you some practical advice, but I'm also just generally for the whole room is that whenever we are going through any kind of an afflictive situation, there's at least two voices. Right? We forget that. We, you said, I can't get out of bed. But that implies there's somebody that wants you to get out of bed and somebody that doesn't. Right? So, and this is the real point and what, what I kind of understood with that practice is that it's a separation from ourselves that is causing the problem. Right? That if we could somehow learn to find unity in that minute, right, to actually be able to come into real acceptance, full acceptance with the situation, and then somehow find the humor in it, right, find a little context to it. Here I go again. So in terms of going over it and over again, the way the path works with this is we do go over it again and again. But if we pay attention, those patterns begin to drop away. But only by paying attention to them and fully, they say you wear it out like an old shoe. You keep walking through it. But that is dependent upon awareness, which kind of comes from meditation practice. Other people do it in other ways, and that's fine. And meditation isn't the only way, but it's the only way I know. And that you begin to see it coming again and again. It gets galling. Oh, here I am again. right? <laughs> Everyone else is having fun, and I'm deciding to check out. But beginning to go, wow, this is what I do, changes the whole thing. And it will change the severity of it and the length of it, I've found. You start to put it in context and accept it and go, we've been here before. We'll get through it. Does that make sense? Like there's an acceptance to it. That doesn't mean that we have to act it out or make it worse. But it doesn't mean we should, should repress it either. It's like bringing it into our conversation, a conversation with ourselves. Usually I'm able to, my days are good, but for some strange reason, every day when I wake up for about five or ten minutes from that uh, sleeping state to that waking state, there's a serious sadness, and I know it'll go away as soon as I jump out of bed and see the uh, light of the day, and I'm just happy to be alive. But, f but that ten minutes is really scary. I'm just wondering, someone told me it was a lack of uh, something, uh, stimuli, and that's causing my brain to work in a certain way. Can you just uh, give your thoughts on that? Certainly. Yeah, to some extent, the brain will do whatever we point it to do, right, or train it to do. Now, that's the part of the brain that we see through, the part of the brain that we identify with. The brain, in fact, is enormously vast filled with potential, and that potential is pure opportunity. However, that opportunity from the point of view of our comfort zone feels very threatening because we don't know what it is, right? So you look out into the future and the future is dark, frankly, because we don't know what that future is. The only thing we could do is shine a light on it and create some fake story like, I'm going to go to med school and then I'm going to get married and right, create a scenario which will never happen the way we say it will. So we feel more comfortable. So what I'm going to say is these are games we play. But the truth is the real basic nature of the mind is completely empty and completely devoid of, of all of that. So if you could begin to become friends with that space, 
you know? I think that you'd become in touch with a very powerful tool. Now, what your friend is talking about is fine, but it sounds like a Band-Aid fix, right? Get out and walk around, you'll feel better. But if you could actually become comfortable with that lack of stimulus, with that spacious mind, does that make sense? Tell sort of. All I know is that, is that period from when I wake up to like get out to get into the bathroom, wash my face or something. You know, that's a very scary five minutes. And it's like usually happens every day. And, uh, but once I'm, you know, out there walking to the train, everything's okay. Yeah, you got it. Take that five minutes. I, I really encourage you to do this and sit up and just pay attention to it. Be with it. Be with that fear before you cover it up, before you caffeinate it, before you turn on NPR, right? Before you run out the door and crank up your day. Be in that vulnerable space. That vulnerable space is a liminal space between waking and sleeping. It's a really sensitive time, like dusk and er early morning. If I'm in that space and I might not be able to beat it, it might beat me. How would that happen? What would happen? With a club? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be making fun of you, but I'm saying that, that those fears that we have, right? That, oh my God, if I open that case, what's going to happen? But what, what actually happens? Does anybody really, there are people that have been hospitalized because of psychological situations. That has happened, but not because they looked into their mind, right? But because of what they believed about their mind because of clamping down on their mind, because of making decisions to put their mind in a place they can't get it out of. So what I'm suggesting is opening up. Does that make sense? Sure. I'm going to do a little practice for us now, and this is what I will recommend. Thank Just you. try it. See, see, how it. see how it works. If you get an inkling that this is getting too deep or too scary, then back off, by all means. I have a great, uh, I studied for a while with Alan Finger, some of you might know, a yoga teacher in New York, a bit of a legend, and uh, he, he, likes to, he likes to say, if it hurts, it means it's not good, <laughs> stop, <laughs> so I always thought that that was good. Same thing with heart work, right, if it, if it starts to feel not right or you feel unsafe, then, then just let it go. But I would say the more we could just pay attention and look into those spaces, the better. Um, that space, first thing getting up in the morning, is talked about a lot, particularly at Trump Rinpoche and the Shambhala teachings, uh, because it's a space where we're really easily influenced. So we could shut our mind down and jump out of bed, right? I have a friend that won't get out of bed until her Adderall kicks in literally takes the Adderall and covers herself up in bed until she has the energy. And she is trying not to do that. Because we're missing something in there, right, when we do that. We're missing that there is a period of, like, doubt and concern. And what I'm suggesting is, rather than blow past that, we could lean into that and get in touch with a very kind of profound part of ourselves. Okay? I'm not talking about therapy, which is fine in its own context. I'm talking about just acceptance. Okay? Um, I, you can be very, say, um, 
yourself and you are in alignment, everything is working that way, but the exterior world presents you with things that are, can be horrific. I mean, death of partners, death, various things like that. So how does one cope with that? I mean, the, these exterior things. Yeah. They just come, and you, you have nothing to do with them. You didn't cause them, but your world shifts. The Buddhists talk about change, and it certainly isn't a surprise. Something awful happens that you didn't expect. So how does one do that? Pema Chodron tells a wonderful story about her teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, and he was, he was giving a wedding, presiding over a wedding, and he had a fan that he used. Sometimes we keep them on the shrine and stuff. It's used to great dramatic effect. And he went up to the bride and groom. It was a, a traditional wedding, and uh, one of each gender back in those days. And... Uh, and he hit the groom on the head with his fan, very lightly, and he said, pain is not a punishment. And then he hit her on the head and said, reward is, I mean, pleasure is not a reward. And then he hit him harder <laughs> and said, pain is not a, and then increasingly harder <laughs> for a number of times, trying to get it into their head that the things that go wrong in life are not because we screwed up. And the things that go right in life are not because we're awesome, you know. That life has all of these things, and being awake for all of it is all we can do. We can't fix it or change it. So I would say if a death of a partner or something serious happens, yes, there's going to be a disintegration. A de yes, there is. And the work is to pull yourself back together when you can, as you can, to accept your feelings, accept the sadness and be with however you feel, you know, and that kind of thing. Buddha actually, apparently, I'm always skeptical of saying the Buddha said, because as you probably know, nothing was written during his lifetime. So the really closest things we have to words of the Buddha are the sutras and shastras, well, the sutras in particular, that are, you know, were remembered a century later, at least a generation later, but not really a century later or more. And they begin with the phrase, thus have I heard. And I kind of have always loved that about Buddhist teachings because there's no dogma implied. It's kind of going, well, I heard that, that there was this guy that said, <laughs> right? Not like there's this thing you have to do <laughs> or else you go to one of these two destinations, right? And you have a, a judgment at the end. I'm not putting down any religion. I think there are people that I know that are uh, practicing Catholics, pra practicing Jews, and we've had these conversations. And they don't really feel that's the, the correct interpretation of either Judaism or Christianity necessarily, that there's this judgment between us. But that's more something that we do because we're lonely and afraid that we're not parenting ourselves right and we have to create these things out there to punish us or reward us, you know? Everything but just letting ourselves be, yeah. Um, so I would say it's been uh, about five years ago. Um, I, was, I was pretty depressed and then a bunch of things kind of hit like a critical point. Mm -hmm. um, and it was probably the hardest time in my life, but it was also like the most transformative. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the way that it felt 
to be at that critical point was like I was in a multi-story burning building and I just like kept going up like floor after floor to get away from the fire that was kind of like consuming everything until I was in the attic and there was nowhere to go. Um, and then it there was the moment where I just, like there was just nothing left to do. So I just kind of gave up. And um, and what that, the, the revelation for me in that moment was that basically what I'm gonna have to do is sit and burn. And, um, and it was really, it, what that felt like was just, was very painful. Um, there was a lot of crying, you know, like for a long time. And, but then the, the way that, that the space changed was that then the, all, those, all those floors and all those spaces in my life that I had kind of run away from that had caught fire um, became places that I could live in. Um, so it's not like, it's not like I, there was this moment where I like beat it. You know, there wasn't this thing where I was like, everything's okay now, or like I, I started feeling good again. It was just like, I, I just kind of got little pieces of my life back that yeah. just grew. So I guess like, I definitely know, I, I guess I can relate to the feeling of running away um, as mm -hmm. everything's kind of burning behind me wanting to like find a space where like I'm, I'm not gonna have to hurt anymore mm -hmm. um, and that never came like everything just got consumed in that but I, I like I think the the transformative moment or just I guess just maybe what I wanted to add if it's like beneficial to anybody is that there was the the moment of realization that I can sit and I can burn and I'll I'll be okay even though I'm gonna cry a lot, mm -hmm. it was all right. Yeah. You know, so. Very, very cool. Yeah, the complete and utter acceptance. It's, it's interesting because uh, I, I remember one of our teachers, would Trump remember, he would say that it's possible that enlightenment isn't the highest of the high at all. It may be the lowest of the low. It's wherever it becomes real, you know? wherever it opens up. And that could be on top of a mountain with incense, or it could be in an AA room and basement somewhere, right? Or it could be just helping somebody on the street, wherever we come into kind of full acceptance of ourselves, you know, or a step toward it, you know, yeah. Hey, can you say something about grasping when you're in this place? Cause for example, um, just like looking at all the beautiful things behind you, mm -hmm. I feel like when I'm in a you know down space like this time of year, I try to look for the things that make me happy that are <laughs> positive, not alcohol or whatnot. You know, like nature and yeah. all the beautiful things like behind you. But you know, you have those like ups and downs, and so then I wonder, well, was I just grasping and you know as part of the ego like pleasing? Not that I think nature is that, but other things. So. You know, then I wonder if I'm trying to go to that extreme rather than just being in it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not mm -hmm. allowing myself to sit in it. Do you think there is a difference between, I mean, I think it's good to surround yourself by positive things, but is there kind of a. Regardless line? of whether it's positive or negative mm -hmm. or whatever the judgments are, let's take those away. Okay. 
what's the difference between um, grasping and mindfulness? You know, being aware right. that you're doing it. Yeah, and and quite energetically, it's about right. opening up rather than shutting down. Right. When you grasp something, you stop seeing it. You start wanting it, and as soon as you want it, you don't see it anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then you go a step further, and then you need it. Right. And then you build your whole psychology around it, and then that poor person on the other end is just like... Right. And you're not enjoying it's not it, me. right? not me. You know, right? right? Okay. It's like, but when you love somebody or something or objects in the shrine, that's why they're there. Right to wake up our senses, but the idea is to keep opening, right? right? And when you feel the grasping, you start to feel everything darken a little bit. Right. You, you start to get more aware that way with meditation. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, sure. There's another um, thing that I forgot, and I do want to say this before we close. It, this is a great teaching, too, in uh, the book Ruling Your World by Sakyam Mipam. It's a, chapters three through five, he talks about wind horse. Wind horse is the Tibetan term for prana or chi or your interior vigor. They call it the horse that rides the wind. In Tibetan, the lungta is the word. And that you have lungta when you feel good and you feel brave, you know, that kind of thing. And the teaching that goes with it is that you have that already. That that's what you were born. You wouldn't have come out of the womb if you didn't have that, right? You wouldn't wake up, even if you wake up depressed. <laughs> you wouldn't wake up. And you know how that is with depression sometimes. Have you ever had the experience of waking up and you're fine, and then you remember, oh, I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right, I just broke up with somebody and I have to be, right? So we have that potential, and that, that's the other side of the coin. We have that potential to also find this real joy, Right, and this real openness within that space before everything comes together. You know, just kind of like reaching out into that. So that's really lungta. It's a natural thing. We naturally feel energized when we see something beautiful or even someone beautiful or perhaps have a drink, you know, or whatever it is. We feel like, you know, energized. But then we lose it once we start grasping because it shuts down our energy system. Does that make sense? And we become more addicted and clingy and needy, and those things lower our feeling inside. When our feeling inside becomes depleted, and interestingly enough, the word in Tibetan is drip, <laughs> D-R-I-P, <laughs> drip, I think is how they pronounce it, but it means for it all to leak out, right? Exactly what drip would mean. And when that happens, we're, we lose our, I, this is my term, but emotional immune system is compromised. And we're susceptible to all kinds of things in our brain. When you feel down and you feel crappy, that's not the problem. The problem is the floodgates open and everything you ever did wrong or everything that didn't come to pass and everything you believe should have been happening now in your life starts flooding in. Does that make sense? But that's only, not because any of that's real, it's just because our energy is lowered. Like some people take you know, SSRIs to keep the serotonin levels up, and some people find exercise helps a lot, right? But really, with meditation, it's not that those things aren't important or couldn't be helpful, but meditation is beginning to recognize what we do to block our lungta, right? 
what are the things that we do in our life that build our confidence and build our self-respect? And what are the things that we do that erode those things? Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.